This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello and welcome back. This is Daniel Clark here with the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we interview wildlife photographers, conservationists, and scientists to learn more about the awe-inspiring species that we share this fascinating planet with. Guests of the podcast have traveled to the edges of the world to observe, photograph, study, and support wildlife in their natural environment, and as you probably can imagine, now have some of the most exciting, scary, crazy, extreme, and beautiful stories that I have ever heard. When I think of stunning wildlife photography, Kenya-based Federico Veronesi is always amongst the top of my list. It's hard to describe. His book, Light and Dust, is insanely beautiful. You can also check him out on his social media channels, which I'll link in the show notes. But living in Kenya, he has an intimate knowledge of individual animals that he has watched for years. And that comes across in his work in a profound way. His journey into becoming a wildlife photographer is incredibly interesting and insanely inspiring. But my favorite part of this conversation details his work with caracals, a mysterious African cat that receives much less attention than the lions and leopards, largely due to its elusive nature. But anyways, without further ado, here it is, my conversation with the one and only Federico Veronese. Well, Federico, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm obviously a huge fan and super excited to chat. I wanted to kind of jump in with one of the more unique animals that I've seen you photograph extensively, which is the caracal. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Caracal, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just when you think of African cats, you're always going to lions and leopards. Can you talk a little bit about uh, that that creature? So the caracal is uh, is a is a small is a relatively small cat when compared to leopards, cheetahs, and lions. is um, can weigh up to 15 kgs. is slightly bigger than a than a house cat and is widespread in Africa and Middle East. It's not not it's it's quite widespread and it's quite common. It's not an it's not a particularly endangered animal. Okay. But it's it's really 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 difficult to see in the wild and uh, especially uh, to photograph it in the wild. It the main reason is because it's primarily nocturnal although as we as I've seen in my uh, through the all, all the days I've spent with them they were not necessarily so nocturnal, right. uh, but very elusive. Uh, generally, they're very elusive, very shy animals. Um, they're, they're extremely difficult to see, really good at hiding in even the smallest uh, smallest patches of grass. So they're really difficult to find, really difficult to follow. And uh, so they're, they're, it's, it was quite, it was quite uh, probably... The, the, the most difficult animal uh, I photographed uh, in my in my in my time. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Because uh, actually, when I, I I'm, when I moved to the to the Mara to the Masai Mara in Kenya, that's mm-hmm. where I spent about uh, almost five years of my life living uh, 
almost every day uh, in the in the Masai Mara, which is uh, part of the uh, Serengeti ecosystem. Right, uh, yeah. it's the northern, let's say, the northern uh, the northern uh, tip of the Serengeti ecosystem. It's uh, it's in Kenya. It's where I live. It's where I'm based. I've been based here since 2002. Oh wow. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the Masai Mara is uh, uh, particularly known for cats, lions, leopards, and cheetahs. They're abundant, easy to see, and but also caracals and servals are there. But when I first moved for for two years before, I never saw one caracal at all. And it it has always been talking to other people, other photographers, uh, other guides. It's always been the uh the, the that holy grail kind of animal that right. uh that no one really <laughs> sees you know they're there but you just don't see them or if you do it's just a fleeting glimpse uh across the road and uh so it's uh that that was my perception of the car is the, is the elusiveness even... are they typically because of the high grasses or is are they denning somewhere they they tend to they hide the grass of course they they tend to live in uh, in places where there is a lot of cover so tall grass okay. or bushes bushy areas um, they also uh, go into burrows uh, not necessarily to den but also maybe just for a day maybe they hide for okay. one day in a den that's what I found out uh, through the weeks I spent with them. So they might disappear in a hole and then come back out in the in the evening and so, but they generally always uh, always looking for uh, places to hide basically. Okay. Uh, so that's that, that's uh, and as I said, for the first couple of years of being on Game Drive every day, you would really hardly uh, hear even hear of anyone seeing one. Oh wow! I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's an extremely. Uh, but the, then one day, uh, one day in uh, 2009, that was in October 2009. That was when I uh, had my first uh, encounter with actually two caracal, a mother and a, and a, with a cub, almost full grown cub. Oh wow! Um, yeah, just 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 completely by chance, just driving around, I saw one. An animal ju- just appear on top of a termite mound from the tall grass. You know, these termite mounds uh, are frequent in the savannas yeah, and yeah. the plains of East Africa. They're kind of small hills mm-hmm. uh, coming up of the from the from the plains. So these animals jumped on top of the of uh, of this uh, of this termite mound. I couldn't really even understand what it was because it was <laughs> really something I had never seen before, and I so I had to grab my binoculars and. Shocked to see it was right, oh, wow. but uh, then I looked again. There was another one in the grass. Um, but another thing that one of the things that people uh, mostly uh, say when they when they when they people are lucky enough to see a character is that you just see it for a second, and then as you try to approach it, it disappears because right. they're shy. And, and so I thought, oh, this is. This, I might not see them again because then <laughs> after the, after after this first sighting, the the, the caracal went into the tall grass, and I uh, I, I couldn't see them anymore. So are I you, drove are closer. You a, oh, you're in a car. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was in a car. All this, all these, uh, all these happens 
uh, from a vehicle. Okay. Um, you can't. You 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 can't. It's really not allowed to go uh, to drive around, around in the parks. Yeah. Uh, to walk around because there's so many lions, buffalo, elephants, hippos. Every, you know, every, yeah, you're just asking for it. And it's not allowed. It's even against the law. So it's really oh, not I didn't possible. Know that. So, yeah, yeah, you know, it's absolutely not possible. So I drove closer, and. And obviously they they were gone. They they had really disappeared, as everybody says. Okay. Right. They were really nowhere. But then I remember thinking, yeah, that's 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 the the reputation. But they cannot have physically uh, disappeared. disappeared, dissolved. Yeah. They must be somewhere. <laughs> so I stopped I stopped the car and started scanning with the binoculars everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And uh, until finally, after a lot of searching, I found them. They were both of them clumped together inside of just a small patch of grass. So it's so completely, cool. completely hidden in just uh, one, one small patch of grass. So I could only see the tip of the ears. The caracal is, uh, maybe we'll have a chance to see some images during the, uh, the show. It's a, it's, a, it's a brownish cat. Yeah. It's a mostly brown, reddish cat. Uh, with the black ears and black teeth, uh, tufts of ears mm-hmm. at the top of the t- 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 tufts of hair at the, t- the tip of the of the ears, which right. is their correct is the main is their main feature. So I could see their ears sticking out of the grass. <laughs> so I I, I thought, oh, how can I take a picture? And um, I started taking out the camera. Uh, in that moment, another vehicle appeared, and the two caracals panicked. Right. So they, they 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 were afraid. Obviously, they were not habituated to cars, and and they, so they ran away. They, they the mother led the baby uh, away. How pissed were you uh, at that other uh, car at that point? I that know, but how uh, okay, it's, it's not their fault. They didn't even know. No, it I know, but I could imagine you sitting there just but, being like, "Get uh, away from uh, here!" <laughs> exactly, exactly. But so I followed them with the binoculars as they walked away, and I saw them go in again. As I said, into a hole. Into uh, I saw them disappear into a hole in the ground. In the, right. in the, in the plains, there are many holes dug by uh, wolf dogs, aardvarks, and then used by hyenas. So it's quite common to find holes oh, okay. in the ground. It's quite common. Wait, a hyena so, will go underground? Hyenas den underground, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. That must be uh, a yeah, big yeah. den. Hyenas, they, 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 they don't necessarily uh, make the, the, the holes initially, but they tend to modify holes dug by other animals. So oh they, make, they, yeah, they make very big dens underground with different entrances and uh, chambers. Wow, yeah, I had no idea. Spot, this is the spotted hyena, the, the spotted hyenas. Wow. So that's... Uh, so I, and on that day, I wasn't uh, I wasn't alone. I was with some guests who were because yeah, I, I was leading a uh, I was guiding these guests on a right. on a photographic uh, on a photographic safaris. And it was migration time. It was October, so the guests uh, wanted to see the migration uh, during the middle of the day. It was uh. the last day, actually. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. They must, uh, it must be frustrating uh, when you see something yeah, that sometimes. elusive yeah, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, I want to see the yeah, lions. And you're like, no, uh, exactly. not today. <laughs> exactly. exactly. But uh, the, the characters were in the hole and that we, we waited for a while and they didn't come out again. So, and it was getting late morning by then. So 
we 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 okay so we said okay let's go and try to see the migration migration the crossing the famous wildebeest crossing always happens in the uh, in the middle of the day uh, generally often happens in the middle of the day right so we went and we we saw the we saw the migration so after the early afternoon we said well then what do we, what should we do shall we go back to that area and we see if we can find these uh, these cats again so we went and uh, there was no one around, of course. So we went back to this hole, and there was this uh, this track, uh, dr- this track right quite close to the hole. But the hole was about 50 meters away. So we we drove up and stopped and started using the binoculars, seeing if in the around the hole at quite a distance. We were looking at quite a distance wow. uh, to see if we would see the caracals again. And yeah. nothing, 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 nothing. It was a cloudy day, fortunately. So it it wasn't hot. It wasn't too hot. Mm. So we just uh, so we said, okay, let's let's wait. They, they might still be in the hole. They might come out later in later in the afternoon, maybe at uh, dusk or at sunset. And then all of a sudden, I realized that the the caracal was actually basically not even ten meters away from the car. So it was much closer than where we were <laughs> than where we were uh, where looking. we were looking. Wow. And, uh, and this, so this caracal was just lying there next to us, looking at us, completely exposed, completely relaxed. So we picked the cameras up, trying to make as little noise and movement as possible, because with her being so close, I was afraid that she would, at this, this minimum, the, you know, you just think, the sudden. What, what was the cause of her being, do you think while you guys were looking from 50 meters away, she was close and just got used to you being around? Yeah, like, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. We, we, we were looking, uh, we, so, you know, so many times you're focused in a certain area and you don't, uh, you don't see anywhere else. It's, sometimes it happens when animals are too close. I realize that so many times you almost don't see them because you're used to looking. Uh, right, but almost like counterintuitively, it probably helped out because... The, the cat got comfortable while you guys were looking away. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. She, she obviously she had been there all along because if if she had been moving, I would have uh, I would have seen her, of course. But right. she had been just stationary and all, being there all along. And was it so the we, same one? Do you think with the cub earlier? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, the cub. As, after a few minutes, the cub showed up as 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 well, oh, wow. and this, the cub was playing around. They were doing all sorts of things completely relaxed in our presence playing and cub was biting the mother and uh mother was i just it was unbelievable the whole afternoon Uh. the whole afternoon they were out and just all not even 20 meters away uh even even less and actually the funny thing is that at one point down the track uh, another vehicle came uh, we could hear it in a distance uh, coming the same direction where we were. And the caracal heard it at that moment as well. And as soon as she heard the vehicle, she went back into the hole. Oh, God. Then the vehicle yeah. passed. As I said, oh, no, it's finished. Yeah. Then the vehicle carried on because obviously they couldn't see anything. So the vehicle carried on. And as soon as this vehicle was gone, she came out again and they resumed their, their, uh, <laughs> all their playing and everything. So it was just an unbelievable afternoon. Oh, the whole man. afternoon we spent with them. And uh, it was already that that afternoon, I think I, I, I took more caracal, wild caracal images than most people have ever, uh, Taken have a ever lifetime. even seen them in, yeah. the, in the wild. Absolutely. 
But uh, I, I remember driving back to camp. I was. I thought to myself, "This is this is an unbelievable situation. This is, this is something that might not happen again anymore." To have two caracals so relaxed and uh, so confident with vehicle, with at least one vehicle we have right. seen, yeah. at least wow. one vehicle. So I, I thought, I thought I have to. Uh, I want to follow them and try to see them again. Try to find them again. So this this safari ended. I had with this guest. Uh, the, the, the safari ended, and I remained alone in the Mara for the whole. This was October, right. so for the whole of November, I was again. I was alone in the Mara again. So I started patrolling the area, driving around every day, looking for them. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Couldn't find them anymore. Right. This was for about three weeks. So I every day you go in and just every day for the out early morning, just looking, 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 searching, searching. Uh, go into the around every bush, nothing. I think that's just something that people don't grasp onto is the de- dedication of going the, the dedication, 21 days yeah. in a row looking for one animal and not seeing anything and not seeing anything. The good thing is that being uh, based in the Mara, living in the Mara, I didn't have the, the urge that somebody who comes for a week or 10 days uh has of having to find uh you know and to photograph everything because actually in the mara there's so many things to see and photograph and that's it might seem crazy to just focus on one uh but when you're there all the time this is this is the big advantage being there all the time having all the time of the world that enables you to uh really focus on one thing and especially on such a difficult such a difficult subject such a difficult thing well i also imagine Um, that it allows you to have much more authentic experiences with the wildlife too just because you're not feeling like you're chasing them down in a car when you have to do absolutely 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 that and as i found out with the caracal it was the 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 main thing that was uh, as uh when i found them again and then when i managed to follow them for many days in a row uh, the thing I found out is how important was my behavior in relation to them. Right. Uh, where, uh, most of the time I was alone. So I, I, as we have seen, they were kind of accepting the presence of one vehicle, but it was crucial to always be as, as little, as in, as little intrusive as possible. Right. Always giving them space, always never pushing them, never going to close, let them, letting them come to, uh, come to to me as much as possible. So this was really crucial because being too aggressive with the vehicle, it's it's the the end of uh, the end of the the photography. They would they would disappear. And as I've seen it uh, through the years when other vehicles came and they were really really anxious to take a picture, but sometimes right. they are, the caracal is hiding. You can't you can't force the animal to. Uh, to to come out for you, and so in those in those moments, I would just park away, binoculars set on the exact spot where they had disappeared, where they were sleeping, and so just waiting, waiting, waiting for them to to wake up. But other people might not uh, have all this time and patience, and so for, they were driving in, and that was the end. How expansive? Is the Mara in the sense like, can, is it pretty easy to get away from other cars or is it something where you're trying to take this approach that you're always constantly in the back of your mind stressed that somebody's going to kind of come uh, up The Mara, you? unfortunately, the Mara is, uh, is not a very big park. It's, okay. it's only about 1,500 square kilometers. Oh, wow. And it's in, especially in the high season. 
which means July to September. And then, uh, yeah, basically July to September, that's that it can be really basically impossible to get away from other cars. It's yeah. almost impossible. Very difficult. Very difficult. Uh, these, 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 uh, these encounters happen mostly in the wet season, in the low season, when oh, there were okay. no vehicles around. So that was October, November. November is a very quiet month uh, in the Mara generally. So the vehicles are, are few. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that 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 was possible, but I must say that in the next couple of years, I've had sightings of this same female, the same female as on this day. I, I had I had luck to see her with uh, three different litters. Oh my god! This this one in 2009, then in 2010, I spent another about 10 days with her with another cub, and then in 2011, she had two cubs, and I could spend really a long a lot of time with them when she had two cups, which was wow. quite, quite amazing. And this was August, actually. This was mostly happening in, uh, in the month of August, which is the high season. The good thing is that uh, people don't have the, uh, very few people have the patience to wait and search because the searching was the, was the crucial thing with caracals. You would leave, I would leave them one evening, uh, in the evening in one spot. And then to find them the next day was the was was extremely difficult. But having the at least having the place where I left them the day before, I could start from there and and start looking, looking. And then when you're the first one who finds them, you have a lot of time on your own before other vehicles uh, because before other vehicles uh, show up. And generally, by the time they show up, many times. Uh, the, car- the caracals are already maybe uh, asleep because it's late morning. Right. So you have, and then so then it's a waiting game, and so, people don't so don't have that. Most people to who wait. who get one photo of these during their entire career in the Mara, was there anybody being like, "What the hell are you doing? How are you getting all of these photos?" I, 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 that's because now when after the uh, 2013 mm-hmm. sightings of caracals have almost. Didn't completely, almost completely finished in the Mara. It's it, it has returned uh, as it was before this uh, this female uh, in 2009 showed up. Uh, now it's again almost impossible. To so see it's a not caracal. that they it's not that their numbers are lower. It's just that there was just this one caracal who is there was bizarrely just, yeah, yeah. more accustomed or uh, comfortable uh, hanging out. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. There was this one which uh, allowed one car and then by the by the time in by the time in 2011 came she was allowing one or two cars she had become a little more uh habituated mm-hmm. and then there were in 2011 another caracal showed up in the same area which is quite interesting and i'm not sure uh if there was a relation between the two uh females caracals right. of course as as most cats as almost all cats, they're solitary animals, and they're uh, so they 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 don't they don't live together. They're, mm-hmm. they're they're solitary. But these two caracals were kind of living more or less in the same area for uh, one year in 2011, and uh, so another caracal showed up. These these other ones showed up in 2011, and uh, 2013 I could spend some time with this caracal okay. with the cub with this other caracal. The first one had disappeared in a rocky terrain, rocky area. I had lost sight of her after 2011. And then in 2013, uh, I spent some time with this other caracal, but, but, but she was much more shy 
than, than the previous one. And then in 2014, unfortunately, this caracal was killed by a leopard. Oh, so the, so this, this, car, this other female, which was slightly more habituated, also disappeared. And so now things are uh, basically difficult again. Uh, basically, it's now, again, almost impossible to... How did you find uh, that out? To, did, you, did you see the, the caracal? Somebody saw the leopard with I, it? I, I didn't see it personally. I just, I, I heard it and uh, I heard of the sighting and uh, I saw a picture of the, uh. of the event of the leopard uh, so it was uh, really really uh, but that's part of nature unfortunately right. that's 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 what leopards do that that's what that's that's is that a pretty common uh, item for a leopard or do they no, have trouble no, 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 it's, 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 it's very difficult for a caracal to be surprised by a leopard it's they're generally very alert animals but leopards are animals that can feed and hunt anything really from uh, from a small mouse to a giraffe right so anything in between goes for a leopard so it it can happen leopards have been known to take any several cheetahs as well leopards do kill cheetahs as well so they're uh, that can happen that can happen but it's rare yeah it's rare because they're all very alert animals so basically starting from that day in october of 2009 and uh with especially with this with this female the first three years i after searching back to the back to that uh october november 2009 after <laughs> searching for about three weeks without any uh without any luck i found fi- i finally found them some some good distance away uh from where i'd left them that's probably one of the reasons why I wasn't finding that they had <laughs> right. shifted, but that's that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, uh, you know as I was following them, uh, I was basically finding out about their behavior. Actually, when you look at look at books and uh, behavior books of uh, of mammals, there's not much about caracals at all, because very few people have spent time with them in the wild. Actually, right. most of the research that has been done. Has mostly been done through uh, camera traps or uh, picking up uh, spores, and not really by visual uh, visual observation. Uh, okay. So even uh, for me, understanding uh, their movement was kind of a, a new thing. Whereas with animals like lion, leopards, cheetahs, you kind of you know how they behave. You know one is territorial, one has a wider range, so you can really. Uh, Whereas with these ones, it was for me. It was when I found out they had moved so much. Then I realized how much, how much they would move. And if I think of all the places where I've seen this female uh, through the years, I realized that she basically was covering a huge area, and uh, making it extremely difficult to find her from time from from let's say if you if if you lo- lose her for, if you lost her for one day. Then the second day, then the third day, then it, the places where she could have moved were, uh, it, it was, she could have been everywhere. Basically. Do you ever get contacted so, by researchers who are interested in stuff like this? Learning uh, no, not really by researchers. I've been uh, contacted by the um, BBC for their documentaries. Ah, okay. Cool. Uh, you took it to try to get a feeling of how it would be to try to film caracals in the wild. And uh, I think it, nothing much ever came out of it because it's it is such a uh, you know something that you cannot really count on. Right. Because you might spend uh, 
two months in the Mara without seeing one, even if all you're doing is searching for one. So it's, it's, uh, I think they never really ended up uh, doing anything specifically about them. Because Is that a tough thing to talk to BBC about? Because I would imagine if BBC came, you'd want to work with them. So like for planet Earth or something, you're like, yes, I want to do it. And you're like, yeah, I can definitely find a caracal. But you don't want to, it's tough to give them the true answer because you know that that's likely going to make them not say yes. To, to uh, you know, I, I, basically i was i was uh, being very frank uh, also yeah. because when they asked me it wasn't in the time when i was actually following that female uh, when it yeah. was after that female had kind of disappeared so it's uh and you don't want to deal with the stress of them coming and being like oh, absolutely shit, absolutely absolutely but then i i must say they were really asking me things but not really wanting to uh to to necessarily work with me because they have they they have a big team of people they work with in East Africa. So right. it was just that they were seeing the pictures and they were seeing the, they, 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 so they were asking me some, some advice, but then with the idea of going on with their own, uh, with their own team. But I told them this is, uh, to me, it's just, if you're there all the time, like for two, three years, and then you might get lucky once you find one <laughs> and then you right. start, you can try to follow, but just coming out of the blue and hoping to find one it's yeah that's it's a not bit, a good uh, uh, good proposition to no a, a television ex- crew. Ex- exactly yeah exactly so this was basically probably the most exciting and the one i wasn't really even thinking of when i started when i moved to the mara when i started doing photographing uh full time uh i i wasn't even dreaming of doing something like this with the caracals it was just something the caracal was something that was just you knew it was there but maybe i wouldn't see i wouldn't ever see one in my life but then it this happened so it was particularly uh exciting yeah i can imagine and for when you get those images and you know that they're as rare as they are is the excitement from obviously just being able to experience that but is there more of a likelihood of being able to sell that to like a national geographic or something like that? Or do you typically just keep them for your books? Um, yeah, yeah this is a uh, difficult, uh, it's a difficult, uh, difficult, uh, question. Cause uh, to me, the main thing is doing it for, for myself, for right. being there, for the joy of the joy of doing it, the joy of being in the wild, the joy of spending time with the animals. So, uh, obviously as a photographer, I, 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 the ambition is to try to take as as beautiful pictures as much as possible, and and uh, obviously in the, in such a um, a place like East Africa, like the Mara, where there's so many people that visit, so many photographers, it, it's it's really difficult to make photographs that are uh, new, unseen, uh, to photograph something that is not been already photographed by anyone before. It's right. really extremely difficult. So to find a situation like this for the characters, besides the joy, also I was uh, thinking this is something that these are images that no one has uh, has ever uh, captured uh, before. Then it's it, uh, but then whatever comes after is 
I've, I've, I've sent those images to the BBC magazine, uh, the wildlife, BBC Wildlife magazine. They took them in and some other magazines took them in. National Geographic, they weren't really interested. I think uh, maybe they weren't, I don't know. Uh, they weren't, I don't know. They didn't find, I, I actually, I'm not very good with uh pushing and marketing my images if i yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, on one side this is not really uh, my <laughs> my my main thing the, the ability of self of you know pushing and yeah. trying to be self-promotion it's not really uh, a good part uh, something that i i do well at it's all, something so. i think about a lot when you think of at least my friends who are more artistic types generally those don't go hand in hand, like being a business focused person and being more of an artistic person. And it makes you think like what amazing art is out there. That's just completely undiscovered because it's done by somebody who has just never had a desire. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying yeah. you you in particular, because obviously yeah. I've found you and I've been a fan for a while, but I'm sure there's somebody just who like is just out Absolutely. who knows where that's a absolute musical genius and nobody ever gets to see his stuff or her stuff absolutely absolutely i think that when if you really want to break through in one of these artistic challenges you have to have both you have to you have to you, otherwise it's and uh, and for me it's really every time i have to do anything that it comes that, that comes to self-promotion stuff is like forcing me into it and yeah uh, it's, it's like a big internal struggle for me for me i would just be in the wild take the pictures walk on the pictures and but you have to like right. force yourself to try to do as much as possible otherwise you just end up unless you do it for a hobby and it's it's not your uh it's not your uh, living then it's it's another story but if you really want to uh you have to have both you have to yeah. try to do both as much as possible as much as possible i think something that's really unique and something that's been really fun for me as a fan to follow along with your work is kind of similar to the story you just told with the caracals and the work that goes into understanding them and knowing them. It seems like you've spent years with some of these specific animals to the point where you know them incredibly intimately. Um, yeah. How, how do you think that that, um, can you talk a little bit about the process through something like that and how that kind of differentiates or just how that helps you um, more appreciate the experience of being out there? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's one of the things when I went, one of the reasons why I decided to uh, move physically to the Masai Mara in, uh, and to spend time in one place only, as opposed to many photographers who just do one one trip there, one trip there, one trip there, one trip, you know, go all over the world. I just thought, no, I want to concentrate on one place. Right. And in that one place, one animal. For example, uh, one of the one of the main uh, animals I've spent time with is the leopard. Mm -hmm. uh, leopards uh, are ex also difficult animals to follow and photograph, and um, but they're territorial. The, the advantage of leopards is that they're territorial. So by uh, working intensively in one territory and uh, being able to recognize the animals one by one, then I could focus on one particular on one particular animal and, and 
uh, her offsprings. It was particularly it was a female. Right. Uh, so she she had many cups as I, many many liters as I followed her and as I spent time with her and it really being able to know the animals and follow that just not just a leopard but that particular leopard when you're seen. And when you're seeing what just what she's doing anytime, even if it's just even if she's just, let's say, for example, walking along the river, you're already thinking, what is she doing? Is she going from where to where? Where is she right. going? My, maybe her cubs are in there or, you know, as you know, uh, yeah, you- as you know, the background of her story. Everything that she does, you can relate it to her past. And so you develop uh, a much more intimate knowledge uh of of the animal and uh, and that obviously that helps for the photography because if uh, if you know that this leopard always when she walks in this area she always passes by or almost always passes by a certain area you can say okay i'll go there and wait for her and right and right. And, uh, and and get her here when she comes here or if you know where that she has cubs in a certain area you can already let's say position and wait for her to come back to her cubs and all these sorts of things are uh, very difficult to do unless you have uh, a, a direct knowledge of of of, of the particular animal and uh, and uh, the territory, the area. So that also helps a lot with the photography in being able to anticipate. But as I, as, as I say, the, the the main let's say the main uh, uh, thing for me was being able to uh, see these animals grow from being sometimes I've seen some of these for example the leopard that um, uh, I mentioned before had uh, her second to last litter before she before she died uh, she had two cubs and she remained with one uh, one uh, female one female one one daughter mm-hmm. and this daughter now has taken over the territory wow. uh, of her mother when when the, when the mother died she took over uh, her territory and now she's having cubs of her own oh, so it's beautiful. Uh, I, for me having seen this leopard when she was a tiny cub <laughs> now seeing her having cubs of their own it's, it's really really beautiful and it's it's something that's really special and, and makes you know makes you feel like you're really uh having a glimpse into their world let's say let's uh you're kind of there you're getting a little bit into their secrets and into their mystery and what does that entail? Like, is that something where it's a once a month type of thing, or is that an every day for a certain period of time? Like, when you, for me, I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine being able to differentiate cat to cat. So, like, when you see yeah. a baby cub, how do you know that it's that that female that's now prowling around? Is it because you just have seen it so frequently? Uh, yeah, yes. After some some of these animals, when you see them, uh, when you see them all the time, you start to they at first they all look the same, but then you you get used to their uh, just to the shape of their eyes, the color of their eyes, their the ears, everything. But in order to be really sure and not to make mistakes, you have to have scientific methods mm. to identify them. So what I've been doing ever since I moved to the Maris, I've been uh taking pictures even just identification pictures of all the leopards and cheetahs cool i was i was seeing in order and uh with leopards and cheetahs um the way to identify them through the years is through the spots uh it's like a fingerprint spots 
it's like fingerprints they don't change wow. they're unique to each one and they and uh, they don't change through the years uh-huh. through the years so uh, every time i would uh, see a uh, one of these cats i would try to take a picture even if it's not a beautiful picture but just an id picture to keep uh, to keep in a, in a sort of a, a catalog and when i began i had I had a paper uh, catalog of pictures, printed printed pictures. Now I have everything in the phone because now everything is so much right. easier. So I have everything <laughs> in the phone. And uh, so that's how, basically. So many times you just see one and you, you, you see leopard, uh, you, you see a cheetah and you can identify immediately. But you can also take, you can also make mistakes if you don't, if, if you are in doubt, if you don't come to check with scientific methods. So you see the spots the way the spots are on the face uh that's 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 uh that's how we do that's, that's how you so do cool. it yeah 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 how are, how are the leopard with, populations doing the leopards uh, of all the of all the big cats they are the probably the less uh, endangered because okay. they're as i say they're very they're very adaptable mm-hmm. they can they can eat anything as i said before so they can they they can live in so many habitats because they're not tied to a specific uh, prey species. For example, lions are much more linked to the presence of medium size, medium to big size uh, herbivores. Right. So if uh, a lion would never be able to live in a forest uh, just outside of Nairobi, for right. example, because there's nothing to hunt for them. Whereas, although we have Nairobi National Park, so that's another, so I probably picked that <laughs> bad example because we have Nairobi National Park, which is full of lions. But for, there are some parks, some forests within the city where you can't find leopards mm. because they feed of monkeys, they feed of uh, hares, rabbits, dogs, domestic dogs, stray dogs. Leopard can hunt anything. Yeah, Lion well, even in Planet Earth to. too, they showed some crazy footage of leopards in the cities. Just like going exactly. around and picking off like pigs and stuff like that that were in the exactly, cities. exactly, exactly. So this this uh, great adaptability makes them the less uh, the less uh, endangered uh, endangered animal, um, and so they, they can they're able to survive in in uh, in uh, many habitats in many places even close to humans. Although you never see them because they're extremely elusive and that's how they survive. You just never see them. But coyotes they're, they're, are kind of like they're, that in California. I mean, it's it, apparently there's a huge coyote population in downtown LA and you hardly ever see them, but it's just because they can eat literally anything. Really? Okay. Okay. I heard even mountain lions would, would, uh, leave, uh, not too far from Los Angeles. Yeah, the, the, mountain some lions, pictures of- the mountain lions, there's some in Griffith park, which is like the observatory where they filmed La La Land, but there's a few, yeah. um, the difficulty with the, the mountain lions now is that because of there's so many highways in Los Angeles, it's really created these islands um, yeah, where, the lep- yeah. where the lions can't cross between. Um, so there's a lot of just yeah. isolation, which leads to a lot of obviously reproductive issues if there's only so many cats. But they're working on a huge project to build one of those uh, bridges across the big highway okay. in Los Angeles so that they can start getting across and start having right. a little bit more success as a species. But I still think like those numbers are, are pretty low. Whereas, I mean, I was walking in my neighborhood the other day and I live in a very urban area. Yeah. Uh-huh. Two massive coyotes just walking down the road. 
Um, Imagine it's crazy. It's it's absolutely <laughs> wild. Well, that's it shows the the resilience of uh, of these animals. Eh? How they and obviously as as the leopard example shows, the ones that adapt uh, that better adapt to all sorts of uh, climatic conditions and. Uh, they are the ones who survive. For example, a lion would not be able to leave. A cheetah as well would not be able to leave unless there's in, the, in, the, in certain conditions, with certain space, with certain prey species. That's why their numbers are much lower and they're more endangered uh, yeah. than the leopard. But my dream is to find one of those mountain lions in Los Angeles. I would love that. It's not going to be easy. Eh? No, it's a, it's a process. I mean... But there's that. Have you ever seen that Steve Winter photo where it's literally yeah. the the Hollywood sign in the background? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Um, Amazing to think that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the picture there. I was thinking of. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So what what got you into all of this? Was there was this something that as a kid you were always passionate about wildlife or photography yeah. or it was kind of absolutely developed? yeah yeah Where'd absolutely you grow up? yeah yeah yeah. I grew up in Italy in a city in the north called uh, Milan. Okay, which is a uh, quite a big city, actually. Probably uh, Italy's the second biggest. It's like the uh, fashion capital of the world, isn't it? Fashion capital and uh, industrial capital as well. Wasn't really anything. That didn't you, wasn't really you, uh, anything. To, are you the the fashionista of the safaris? Uh, absolutely <laughs> not. That's why I moved away from there. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. That it, it wasn't really my my place. And so it's immediately after university. I, 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 immediately after university, I moved. Uh, I moved. Uh, I moved here. I grew up with the uh, passion for wildlife since when I was three years old. Oh, wow. I was, uh, yeah, it was, I, you know, with kids, many kids love wild animals and uh, it's not that uncommon, but with me, the thing remained and I was uh, really going, reading books and all uh, just dreaming of, uh, dreaming of the wildlife and especially of Africa. As much as I like all animals in the world, of course, but for me, it's always been Africa, Africa, Africa. Right. The plain, the savannas of Africa. So, um, and I came here on a trip with my parents. They, 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 they took me on on a trip when I was six years old. That was the first time I came, you know, oh, just yeah. on a uh, on a safari, and that was my like. Oh, yeah, this, this is, is the uh, I, I, my this is this, this is my place. But obviously, then I went back to study university and everything. So after university, I uh, I finally uh, moved. Uh, moved for good that's about 16 years ago oh wow uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's i've been already 16 years living in uh, living in kenya and the photography started when i was a teenager basically when i was 15 16 i, I grew up in a family of uh, both photographers my father and my mother they're keen photographers although not professionals but very very uh advanced uh so i can i kind of grew up with uh, photographs being shown and going around the house all the time, uh, photographic books in the house. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, it, it, I was kind of almost naturally uh, brought into a kind of a photographic environment. And so obviously I, the two things uh, came to, came together when I when I moved here, and uh, so that's that's what I've been I've been doing ever ever Was since. Was there any wildlife to photograph in Italy? Not really. There, there is actually Italy's. Uh, 
is of all the European countries is one of the ones which with uh, more wildlife because we have uh, wolves, we have bears, we have uh, ibexes, we have uh, all sorts of uh, kind of European deers. Yeah, um, in the Alps and stuff. But in the Alps and in, in the in the center, and so there there are there are animals and there are beautiful national parks as well, and uh, but. With me, it's for some reason I've always been attracted to uh, to Africa, and so I I'd never really photographed animals much when I was in Italy at all. Was at it? All. A, I just were you nervous moving to Africa just because it was such a big change for you, or is it something like yeah, is it the calling and I'm going to do it? Because it sounds like a big no, challenge. no, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all because it's after university. I uh, I had a I through university I found a. Uh, an uh, internship for three months here in Nairobi. Okay. So that's that's what I did uh, for three months. I moved to uh, moved to Kenya first, uh, just for a limited period. And uh, but I, and I really loved it. I, I absolutely loved being here. I loved living here. I loved the way of life, and uh, I loved obviously being uh, close to the animals. So, but then when I went back. After these three months, I had to do my uh, military uh, military service, which I, I I did civil service instead. But so mm-hmm. that's compulsory. So oh, I had I to go that. back, and then uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, now it's not anymore. But back then, it was still compulsory to okay. do one year of uh, either military or civil service. So I did that, and then after that, uh, then the big the big choice uh, the big yeah. choice came. What do I do? Do I go to Africa for good or? Because uh, th- through the uh, in those three months when I was here, I managed to get some contacts, and I was actually offered uh, a job here in Kenya, here in Nairobi, not as a photographer, because I studied economics. I studied something that has nothing nothing much to do with the animals and the, yeah. and the photography. So I, I did graduated too, actually. In I studied I studied finance uh, and entrepreneurship, and I was like. So I did a couple jobs in finance. I was like, I'm good on this. I think I'm going to switch over. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. That's the, more or less that's what happened to me as well. But uh, so when I uh, I got an opportunity for a job here in an NGO in Nairobi mm-hmm. uh, as a financial administrator, so that that for, was, for me would have been was was perfect as a as a starting point, as yeah. moving, you know, as something to give me a base and then start from here start. Uh, you know the wildlife and the photography to follow, but still it was very difficult to make that choice because that that was kind of moving completely and oh, yeah. and at the same time I was being offered uh, the funny thing is I was being offered jobs in Italy linked to my university to my right. degree so some jobs and normal jobs in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in companies in Italy as uh, in finance so I. Actually, I ended up after a lot of internal struggle. I I ended up taking one of these jobs. Oh, really? Where was uh, yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was uh, in a, imagine an oil company. Wow. I were, yeah, it was big, big, uh, big. But it was a big. It was Italy's biggest uh, oil company, uh, working in um, setting up uh, oil infrastructure for the oil business. And I started, uh, so I thought, this is a good job. I'm going to travel all over the world. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do this. And then, mm. so I took this job. And then the, the, I remember the first day I walked into this big building and I said, what the fuck did I do? 
I fucked up completely. Before you I had made a mess. Door. Jeez. Uh, I, what did I do? What am I doing here? <laughs> that was, but it was oh, a no. strong realization. Yeah. It was a strong realization. That was, it was the, it was what I needed to, to, to remove any doubt. Yeah. So after three months of that, I said, guys, I'm going to Africa. I always say so sometimes after, it's better uh, to, I think it's more dangerous to have a job that you're like, somewhat satisfied in than the one that you absolutely hate because when you hate you want to better your circumstance when you're uh, exactly. like, eh, this is okay it's paying me enough to get by all of a sudden that's the type of thing you look down 15 20 years and you're like and you're like i wish is, i hated yeah, yeah, yeah. my job uh, exactly but for me it was the first day it was the first i remember the first day uh it was just i hadn't even seen the job but i realized immediately i'd made a mistake so did you quit I, I quit after three months. I gave them the notice. And uh, after six months, uh, I moved to Africa. I moved to Kenya. For, I, with, that, with the job I found uh, uh, before in an, in an NGO. So I did about four years in administration here in Nairobi of this uh, NGO. And it was very interesting. I did a lot of uh, work in Somalia, northern Kenya, all cool. remote places. And in the weekends, I was going to the parks. Weekends, holidays, just driving to the park, driving, photograph, photograph, photograph every weekend. Mm-hmm. Then after about after about four and a half years, for about four years, I, even even that those weekends were not enough anymore. I just mm-hmm. I, I wanted more. I wanted to, as I said, follow these animals day in day in day out, every day, every day, every day. <laughs> see what happens tomorrow, and then right. tomorrow, and then tomorrow. I realized that. If I really wanted to uh, do something in photography, do something uh, not seen before, then do some good images, I needed more time. I needed to be full time on it. So I, I quit that job as well. And uh, I just I, I bought a tent. I set it up in the, in the Masai Mara and I just moved there. Well, you that you was moved a, to a tent in the Masai Mara? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's where that's where I spent uh, about four years of my life. Then, as um, initially in a tent, and, and then as I started, because obviously I needed to pay myself for a living. You know, nobody yeah. was paying me to to enjoy being out in the wild. So I, I had to find a way to to make it uh, to to make it uh, sustainable. So I started guiding. I took a guiding guiding uh, okay. exams here in Kenya. And I started guiding photographers. I'd been a photographer myself. I could have, I could uh, be a guide for other photographers uh, with the advantage of having uh, a, a guide that is also a photographer, which is not common, yeah. especially at that time, about 10 years ago. It wasn't that common. Now there's so many more uh, photographer guide, guides are getting Photo into guides, photography. Yeah. So it's not, but back then it wasn't, it wasn't that common. So I actually started uh, getting uh, getting safaris, having people book me for safaris for guiding. So then it's then that's how it I became. So how uh, so they don't let you walk in the Masai Mara, but they would let you camp in there. Was there any like fear of? Getting... No, there are there are uh, there are uh, designated camping sites. Oh, got it. There are uh, there are camping sites. There are tented camps. There are established tented camps for guests, etc. And there are camping sites, so you can. You can you you can you can't just camp anywhere you want, but you can camp in designated places. And me being yeah yeah yeah, and me being uh, uh, 
long-time resident. I wasn't just going there for two or three days. So I set up a tent, which was actually uh, a kind of a semi-permanent tent, a big one, big Could tent. Could you lock with it? Because I would imagine you have a lot of equipment and stuff in there. Uh, well, the equipment was mostly in the car. I, uh, okay. I was, uh, yeah, 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 I was, uh, not leaving that out. Keeping it mostly. Yeah. yeah no, no, no. And, uh, the, actually the, the, the baboons were the main challenge because sometimes it would, they would break in into the tent. They did it a couple of times, but, uh, <laughs> they're, <laughs> like, they're pretty ornery it. creatures, right? Yeah. They're that nasty creatures. Eh? They're very, very, especially if they understand that there is, uh, food around food possibilities, they become quite very, very aggressive. So they wow, broke so into my tent and uh, I have been obsessed with just entrepreneurship since I've been a kid, like less because I had like a particular passion that I wanted to pursue and more just because I hated working for other people. Like it was just always uh-huh. I hated other people telling me what to do. But you hear it time and time again about, oh, well, you got to hone in on one thing and focus on it and give up everything you can to make sure like you're, yeah. you see out your passion. But I think move like quitting a big well-paying oil job to move from Italy to Nairobi mm. and then moving into a tent in the Maasai Mara to get things yeah. going is, <laughs> is about as uh, giving up whatever you can to get your dream going as possible. So, I mean, kudos to you. That's be- a beautiful yeah, it's, story. It's been a, a long way. Yeah. <laughs> do you yeah. still do a lot of guides, guided tours? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I do. I do um, about nowadays I spend about because now I have a family with a kid. So this last couple of oh, years, congratulations. I've, How I've, the kid? Scaled down, uh, I've scaled down uh, a little bit on, on the time I spend in the bush. So, mm-hmm. But I do about four months a year in, on safari for about four, four, five months a year uh, on safari. And where guiding are you, where are you living on in Nairobi? In Nairobi, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, We're cool. based in Nairobi. And so we are kind of in the middle of uh, the the East African uh, most beautiful parks, Mara, Mboseli, Serengeti, those oh, are the places yeah. I go to the most. And when you when you moved to Kenya, you also mentioned that it was also just the, the way of life in addition to the animals. Was there something specific about the culture that kind of drew well, you there? Uh, the, basically, Kenya, for, uh, Kenya is the country where, I, where, as I said, I came when I was six years old, and that's where I came. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so when I, then I found by coincidence that, that those three months I found, uh, I, the internship I did for three months from the university was again in Kenya, in Nairobi. So it was kind of right. just leading uh, somehow to here. And then when I moved here, I found some amazing people, just very, 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 very easygoing people, like absolutely open and uh, never making you feel unwelcome, which is something that uh, might happen in other, from what I hear in other countries in Africa. It's not, uh, you know, also racial tensions, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not as much anymore, but some years ago there were more in other countries in Africa. Whereas here, I've always felt completely welcome without any any uh, so this is this has been a huge thing and the the climate is wonderful and i think that the parks in kenya and let's say in east africa in general are the the most beautiful and for especially for a photographer uh, of all so this this is really the the perfect culmination of everything the perfect place yeah yeah yeah, absolutely absolutely and uh, unfortunately things are not this 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 16 years i've lived in kenya i've seen a lot of changes uh a lot of development which 
for one, on one side is good, but mm-hmm. the, with it come a lot of uh, environmental distractions. So it's been a uh, obviously things are changed. Still, still very good, but things are things are slowly changing. Slowly Have you changing. noticed that affecting? The parks, like how are the parks doing in general and the, the wildlife within them is the conservation focus? Like does Kenya in general do pretty well? Or Well, Kenya is uh, on one side, it does very well because it has some uh, policies that I really, really believe in. Um, uh, a very clear uh, policy against uh, hunting so that mm. every animal that is killed is killed by somebody who's doing doing it illegally, a criminal. There's no distinction b- between uh, uh, trophy hunters or uh, culling of animals. So right, right. No, anim- no animal can be killed. That's cool. Another thing is that animals are not owned by anyone. So they're kind of uh, belonging to uh, the, the country, the government, uh, basically to the whole country. So uh, each animal is... Is not private property of anyone, and that opens up. Of course, that uh, uh, enables the fact that people, even if you have an animal on your land, you can't do whatever you want with it. Right. Uh, which is not, unfortunately, not what happens in other countries in Africa. Which is surprising. Such as, yeah. Such as what? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, for example, South Africa, which is basically the opposite uh, philosophy of conservation, where animals are private property. They're traded, bred, farmed. People do whatever they want with the with the with the animals, kill them, reproduce, breed them, all sorts of things. Which is, I don't think it's 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 any it's any good. I much prefer a situation where wild animals are uh, are, are wild and belong to everyone. Every citizen, every citizen of Kenya is entitled to the sense of ownership of these animals. So, on some things are. Kenya, I really like uh, Kenya's approach. Some of the most uh, famous conservationists and uh, res- wildlife researchers have, are, are based here, have worked here. So there's a very strong conservation community here in Kenya. And even among the local people, there's a quite good movement uh, mm-hmm. of, of local people who believe in conservation, who want to preserve the animals. That's awesome. But on the other hand, the, pop- the human population in Kenya has grown in this last, uh, let's say, when I when I came when I was six years old. That's 1982. There were 16 million people in Kenya. Now they're up. They're almost 50 million. Wow! So that's a massive pop- human population that's increase. Huge. Yeah, absolutely. So with this come all sorts of uh, other issues. Human wildlife. Uh, human wildlife conflict is he- here in Kenya at the moment. Is the major uh, the major challenge, like farming, cattle grazing type, inter- cattle grazing, you, cattle grazing is the main because it's Kenya is a, a very uh, is a country with a very uh, different habitats within it. There is a very fertile central uh, plateau, uh, which is forests, mountains, very fertile, a lot of agriculture, and animals in these in these areas are. are only confined in small, in small pockets. But then uh, to the east and to the west, you have a huge kind of semi-arid areas, mm-hmm. uh, savannas and uh, bushy, bushy areas where uh, farming, agricultural farming is not, uh, is not, uh, is not, is not possible or is yeah. not possible easily. Uh, and which is good because that has maintained 
significant wild wild animal populations. But the, so the populations there are mostly uh, pastoralists, people who live out of their uh, their uh, their uh, livestock or uh, goats and sheep. Uh, so on one side, this has been good because livestock doesn't necessarily uh, clash with the presence of wild animals. Right. So uh, a certain amount of livestock has coexisted forever with wild animals and kind of always also reasonably well. But now what is happening is that the balance between the number of livestock and the available land is, is, is completely changing. The number of livestock is increasing so much. The number of people is increasing. So the number of livestock is increasing as well. And the land not always is always, the, not only is always the same, but it's actually shrinking because uh, agriculture is creeping in, towns, are, people are starting building towns. Uh, Irrigation so gets pressure, better and, and uh, can kind of exactly. get out of the fertile area a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the pressure on those areas is getting getting stronger and stronger and stronger so that's that's one of the main challenges we're having actually most most in most parks of kenya now you when you go when you, you go to a park you are going to see some cattle inside the park as well besides alongside the animals the wild animals you're going to see cattle as well and so, so is that bigger yeah. problem the uh the worry of predation on these animals or is it also that they're kind of eating the grass that some of the uh, yeah 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 all sorts all sorts of things because okay. they the the numbers are so huge that especially on dry years like it was last year 2017 was a disaster it was a very dry year uh so when they uh when they, 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 these 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 herds of cattle are so huge that they basically uh eat away and completely entire areas of the parks when it's when the situation is, is very is very is, is a bit extreme so that obviously leaves very little food available for the for the wild animals plus <clears throat> uh, animals when lions find themselves surrounded by such easy prey as as cows yeah. especially at night because a lot of the grazing happens at night uh, they will they will try to hunt them obviously so then the 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 livestock owners retaliate and uh, lions get killed leopards get killed uh, carcasses get poisoned so the vultures get poisoned so the so they, poison they, they, the... they poison the carcass so the lions eat it and they die so but then the uh, vultures die so it's is that what uh, happened I, I don't know if this is too specific but i heard a story about there's a i don't even know where this is but a part in africa where they actually have tree climbing lions and yeah yeah eight yeah. of them it's a very small population and it's a weird little sub-segment of lions and eight of them were poisoned i think yeah just back. recently yeah 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 is yeah, that is that through uh, i was always wondering like how would a lion be poisoned is that what it is it's it's a uh, yeah, type they, of thing? yeah absolutely queen elizabeth i think it was in queen elizabeth national park in uganda uh, they poisoned the carcasses they poisoned when uh, when uh, when they find a um, cow carcass killed by lion they will poison it so the all the animals that would feed on it uh, die. That was brutal. Yeah, I mean, that like that's... they showed a video of just like the skeletons of the mom and like six cubs or something like yeah. that. It's just like it's hot, really hard not to be a huge downer, but it was brutal to look at. I but my I as a layperson, I always was I was like, how did they get poisoned? It just seems so odd to me, but now it explains it. 
that, that's that's how it happens. So is that's there what are the the measures that are being put into place? Like, are there people trying to help? Is is there like an easy solution? It sounds like a complex. Thing. No, not easy at all. Because no government will want to really. Uh, um, go against the needs and the wishes of such huge chunks of the population. And, you know, governments, especially here in Kenya, governments are elected mostly on tribal basis. Uh, so what if do you, you mean by that? By basically, uh, Kenya has uh, about 40 tribes. Oh, okay. For 40 different tribes. And each, uh, each, uh, the, the, the people are still very, very much linked to their to their own tribes. Uh, so uh, political uh, choices are made mostly on the basis of tribal connections and relations. So one tribe will vote for their for the candidate of their tribe most of the time. So you have now two or three main tribes that always fight for power. And uh, so the votes of, uh, let's say, for example, the Masai, which are the most, the, 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 the one of the biggest pastoralist communities mm-hmm. who, who live uh, on, in the bo- on the bo- along the border between Kenya and Tanzania. Very difficult to find a government who will say, ah, now no more cows in the park. They, 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 it's very difficult to implement because then you basically lose all the support and the votes from that entire community right. of people. So it's it's a very difficult, uh, very very big challenge. Very big challenge. The, are... the economic value of the wildlife would be substantially higher for the country than the the cattle, or is that not? Maybe I just don't understand the scale of the cattle. It it is it uh, it is definitely it is. But for those people, for the people who own the cattle, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's not necessarily an issue strictly. That has to do with economics. Okay, it's like a so way of basically, life. basically for them, uh, for the now I'm talking about the Maasai, but Samburus have similar traditions. They have uh, the cattle for them is their wealth. So a rich man in the Maasai community is one who has a lot of cows, not okay. one who has a lot of money. And if he has a lot of money, he will buy the cows. Right. So the the aim, the final aim to their, you know, to their the the uh, for for their wealth is the cows. So if you if you're a rich man, you want to have many cows. Okay. You don't want a lot of money. So this this skews up challenges all our paradigm, all right. our way of thinking. Because you think like for example in the Mara, there's a lot. Of, the, the Mara is an extremely uh, visited area. Which that brings a lot of money to the community, a lot. So the com- also the communities around the park are very, they're quite, quite, uh, quite receiving a lot of benefits from the park. Right. And in different ways through private conservancies around the edges and jobs and guiding jobs, all sorts of things. But this, and so people thought, people thought, okay, when since they will make so much money out of the park, eventually they will want to protect it and. You know, right. and take care of it. That that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. So they have they're taking the money and buying the cows. Right. And so that and that in the long run will is destroying the park. But you know, it's it's a diff. Yeah, it's, it's, for them, the, uh, 
I think it's a, a good point where like it's always so easy when you're not a part of a culture to be like, oh well, why don't they just do this or why don't they just do that? And it's like because you just don't understand the dynamics of how intricate exactly. and how different each um, socio dynamics can be within a, a different region. How Absolutely. about how about Absolutely. I mean I've seen I've seen you do a lot of beautiful photography of elephants. How, how are they doing in general? Like is poaching a pretty present thing going on within the park well it's uh, elephants are since when i was uh, a small child they've been my favorite animal so it's okay. it's been my but then when i in photography i spent a lot of time with uh, all other animals as we've seen but elephants still have a very strong uh, place in my in my in my interest and in my photography as well um Poaching, the poaching situation with elephants is ex, it's been extremely bad mm-hmm. for the last 10 years, since about 2007-2008. We've lost about approximately between 150 to 200,000 elephants. Oh my God, in uh, 10 years? Out of, in 10 years, out of a population of about 600,000, something like that. So it's uh, it's been really... Uh, very very bad 10 years that that was linked mostly to the growth of uh the asian economies and the demand of for ivory that comes from those countries such right. as china uh, mostly china but other countries as well now the situation probably is kind of imp- improving a little bit now uh kenya has been hit by poaching but not as terribly as other countries. Mm-hmm. Probably the, the country that has been hit the most was Tanzania. Okay. Tanzania lost about half of their elephants from a population of about 110,000. They went they're now down to 50,000 or something like that. Is that, so less, uh, is that less money being put into protection or is that something? It's, uh, I, in in uh, so many uh, times, uh, the um, uh, authorities have an, uh, an involvement in this kind of businesses. So it's all a matter of seeing how much is uh, uh, the government right. involved in the, in the, in the poaching. And that's, that's what has happened uh, in Tanzania and in other countries as well. Uh, we have seen Zimbabwe, the first lady, the former first lady uh, was one, was, has been, has been involved in, uh, deal in uh, deals with are uh, dealing with ivory and, oh, I didn't know that. and uh, the, so that's uh, basically it has to do a lot with uh, with uh, the involvement of the authorities or how much the authorities are actually willing to really uh, stop these uh, these uh, this trafficking right so that's Kenya has been it's been not bad but even here we have we have had cases of uh, poaching um, but now it's not now it's not so bad the Mara is unfortunately has been one of the most targeted targeted uh, areas in Kenya but mostly outside the park obviously animals uh, don't, don't know the borders of the park and that's that's an issue that comes a lot in, in play with human wildlife as conflict as well they so many times the parks the borders of the parks had not been uh, laid down, keeping in mind the ecosystems, dynamics, the movement of the animals. Right. They're just randomly, randomly put down. So animals move out of the park 
of the parks in certain season or even within the same from day to night, they move in and out of the parks. So that exposes them to one side human wildlife conflict because they come into contact with the populations sure. and to poaching because they're less uh, less uh, protected once they're outside the reserves. A lot of the protection by paradox in the parks is is provided by tourists, by people, just people being there, people being there. So actually, most of the poaching happens in areas where there are no tourists, obviously, and that's uh, that's something that is uh, that is worth uh, uh, keeping and uh, keeping in mind because obviously, where there are where there are tourists, there are uh, a lot of people, guides, uh, rangers, everything. Whereas in the remote areas, that's where uh, the situation is much is much more challenging. So that's why that's how the, the role of tourism, if properly. Uh, if properly utilized, can also be a tool to improve security for that's animals. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, really it's uh, unfortunately that's not what always happens. Because, for example, in the Mara, you get hundreds of people wanting to build camps all inside the Mara. Right. So it's uh, so it's uh, difficult to convince people to uh, to move to more remote areas. But this is actually happening a little bit in Kenya uh, on a positive side. We talked about the impact of uh, population growth before but there's actually a lot of positive uh, developments in Kenya such as uh, conservancies private conservancies mm. so uh, pr- land owners getting together with their small pieces of land so putting their land together and uh, availing this land for conservation and tourism so they let camps uh, be built in their area oh, that's and awesome. they they make uh, they make a profit out of uh, leasing the land to the camp uh, to the camp and, and so that 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 has been working very well in the mara actually to up to the point that uh, there's sometimes more animals outside the park in these private conservancies than inside yeah and it so makes this, it so uh, that the camps aren't as concentrated in one spot exactly and you sp- as, as you spread out uh, tourism also animals uh, become more protected in the in those remote areas. So in the end, it, it it has a very very positive effect. Whereas when you concentrate camps all in one area, it has a negative effect because the disturbance to the animals become uh, much. too much in the uh, limited protection range. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. Can so you, that's uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about if elephants are one of the your first loves of an animal is there a particular experience with an elephant that would kind of rise to the top as your favorite oh well it's it's probably been uh, um, again going back to uh, to the past a little bit i don't want to make make it think like we're living in the past but basically yeah. uh in between 2010 and 2012 uh we i've, I've had spent some amazing time in a, in in Amboseli National Park which is a small national relatively small national park at the base of uh, uh, on the border with uh, with the Tanzania so in the okay. south of Kenya and uh, is the fa- is the park where you have the famous view of Mount Kilimanjaro uh, uh, behind okay. behind the elephants so it's an iconic place amazing place uh, with a very very high concentration of elephants and um Probably the best time I spent with with the elephants was there in in the year in the beginning of 2010. In 2009, there had been a massive drought in 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 all of Kenya, extremely 
devastating drought. So many of the smaller of the uh, of the baby elephants died, and also the older older elephants older elephants couldn't make it uh, through that uh, drought. And uh, in addition, elephants uh, have uh, uh, an adaptation that blocks their coming into estrus period. Um, when the conditions oh, are not right, when there's no food, when there's no water. Right. And so they, they concentrate all their energy in finding food and sustaining themselves. Right. But obviously getting into estrus and having a pregnancy when the conditions, when the food is not abundant, it's, it's very stressful for the elephant and it would probably be not successful. So they have developed this adaptation of not get, of females not getting into estrus oh, when, when the conditions are not good when it's too dry. So for the whole of 2009, uh, the drought went on. And just at the end of 2009, uh, finally the rains returned and they were quite abundant rains. So food became abundant, abundant again. The one big, big characteristic of, of East Africa is how fast uh, the leaves and the bushes, the trees regenerate and the grass regenerate after a drought mm. uh so as as the the rains came the food became abundant all of a sudden so many females uh came into estrus more or less all at the same time so they as as soon as the conditions were good again they all came into estrus and that sparked uh, a period of uh, extreme intense extremely intense social activity Wow. Uh, which was uh, fantastic to witness. Uh, so there were elephants, uh, uh, males fighting each other, f uh, mating, courtships, mm -hmm. uh, all, all sorts of things uh, happening uh, in Amboseli in the beginning of 2010. It was amazing to watch. Wow. And uh, again, because all the females had, had, uh, become, had come into estrus more or less at the same time, about 22 months later, that's uh, beginning of 2012, all, all these females gave birth, all more or less at the same time again. Wait, elephants are, the, elephant pregnancies are how long? 22 months, almost two years. For one elephant? Uh, for one baby elephant, yeah. What? One baby that elephant. is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long, it's a long, uh, it's a long pregnancy. But consider that elephants are uh, uh, have more or less the same lifespan as humans. They live up to 60, 65 years of age so it's right. a very long uh lifetime uh so it, and obviously an elephant is a takes probably a lot uh, a lot of time to 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 develop and to yeah, be able but, to wow that's uh, crazy 22 months is a lot yeah they always say that yeah, like yeah. a big factor to the vitality of animals is is something with the reproductive cycle. So uh, the reproductive speed, exactly. One animal every 22 months. That's a pretty low one. But uh, it's, I, the good it's, thing is, I guess they're living longer and having more chances. Yeah. But that's, yeah, exactly. That's an they insane They still have number. a lot of babies through their lifetime. Yeah. That but poor mother. She must be very challenge. tired by the end of that. At the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But again, as 22 months later, the planes were filled with babies. All the females uh, were having new babies. It was amazing again to see and photograph the babies playing all over the place. So it was really, really, uh, that's probably this, this to see this, to witness this cycle uh, of life and, uh, and kind of uh, after all the devastation of the year before to see life begin again 
so so swiftly and rapidly and beautifully it was uh, it was extremely touching it was really fascinating yeah was, i always talk i mean people who have listened to every episode of this podcast will probably get sick of me talking about it but i think there's so much time and attention spent on the doom and gloom of conservation and how like we've lost so many animals over the last couple decades which is true and and it's really sad but something that's always been comforting to me is even experiencing in my own backyard, if you cut back some brush that's encroaching on the house or something to that effect, the resiliency of nature is, is mind blowing. I mean, absolutely. So absolutely. I, I do think it's something that as dire as things can seem, if you do put the right um, policies or laws or just conservation efforts yeah, into effect, management, it's crazy absolutely. how quickly things can bounce back. How quickly? Absolutely. 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 There's, there are many parks in Africa which uh, were completely devastated and now are being properly managed and they're flourishing. And so it's, it's, it's absolutely true. And that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's comforting. As long as we maintain the, 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 the places and uh, that's, that's absolutely comforting. Obviously, there's a limit to, there's a certain lowered limit to which, under which no right. population of animal can go. So that's, uh, that's 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 what we are seeing with rhinos. Unfortunately, at the moment, we are losing rhinos in a, at a certain at such a high rate that it's uh, it, it, it's becoming also very difficult to. Uh, especially the rhino is again another animal that has a very uh, very uh, long cycle, a reproductive cycle. Oh, okay. So uh, also another 15, 16 months of pregnancy. So it's as it's an animal that requires a lot of time to to bounce back and uh, big rhinos are poached because of the horns again from Asian countries. So um, uh, that's, that's, uh, that is all true, but we have to make sure that we don't reach that lower limit under, uh, under which this, yeah, because this then re- re- the, re- recreation cannot happen. Right. Because then it's just, even if all the births are successful, the lower the number to actually grow quickly is just, it's just too low. It's just not enough, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and then you start getting yeah, yeah. into. It's always sad when you hear inbreed. Yeah, there's inbreeding, and then there's also just the conservation efforts where it's they're largely done in human-controlled environments and not necessarily in the wild. And then, to me, like it, it's a sad thought, but I'm always wondering if the behaviors of those animals are exactly the same as if they had just been. Naturally absolutely absolutely some of these animals yeah they but, can't even be reintroduced into the wild some of them and some like cheetahs uh, they're very very difficult to reintroduce into the wild so uh, that's that's definitely a challenge absolutely is there one moment in your career that sticks out and the answer might be no but that sticks out as just kind of a moment where you realize like you're doing exactly what you wanted to be doing in that this is just kind of like a perfect moment. Yeah. Yeah. Actually there've been, uh, there've been many, many actually. Yeah. Obviously not things, not always go as you, as you, as you wish them, but the times when I'm out in, Again, coming back to elephants in Amboseli, some of the times when I'm just parking there, surrounded by elephants, maybe at sunset, not another person in sight, just open, open plains, open savannas around, and this peace and quiet silence, wind, 
and and I'm just sitting there and I'm just those are the moments when I most when I have this this realization most of the time when I'm just exactly doing what I uh, what I want and how lucky I am in a way that that's when it when I have the time to but so many times even when in the evening when I'm just in the camp and I hear the lions roar at night just out of the tent uh, I, uh. Oftentimes, I, I think this is, let's see, let's see where I am. Look at where I am. I mean, just, this is, this is amazing. Uh, yeah, it's a it's beautiful thing. Being able to be here and be, uh, know that I'll be here again tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And it's, it's, it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. And it pays you back for all the, sometimes when pictures don't, <laughs> people don't, uh, you know, pictures don't, don't work or anything doesn't work. But still having that feeling is is it's is so good it's it's really really uh yeah it's it's that realization that it's 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 good to have yeah definitely and it's probably sparking a lot of jealousy and envy from everybody listening because it sounds like a, a beautiful thing to experience if you could put a, a billboard on the side of the highway that disseminates one message in 10 words or less that's kind of something that you feel like is an important message to get out there. Is there anything that comes to mind? Ooh, very difficult to, uh, it's a tough question. Yeah. I would probably definitely focus it on, on the, on, on the conservation. I would, and I would, one thing that I'm always, uh, always, uh, amazed at is how much, uh, and again, having spent a lot of time with individual animals, individual leopards, elephants, and is seeing how much, how close we are to them, how similar we are, how the the, the feelings they're having, like you can almost read into their into their feelings, and they're just the same as ours. Is you know that you can you can read their minds sometimes, and you sometimes you don't you don't understand. Sometimes, but sometimes you do. Sometimes you really perceive a very, very strong feeling, and it relates to so much to the feelings that also we feel every every day as humans. And this is such an important connection that uh, that I would like people to realize that when they're looking at an animal, it's 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 not a, it's not an object. It's just one like us, but with a different shape, with different. Uh, uh, there's something you know. This is what I would really, because there's so much abuse uh, being being done to animals, also by people who think they're doing conservation stuff. And this this approach forgets a lot about the individual and looks more at the species. Mm. And so when you're looking at, uh, for example, uh, some people say, ah, the farming of animals is good because you have so many animals then. Right, but but if, what life are these animals living? So this is a connection that I, I I would really like to stress out. So I wouldn't know how to work, put the words down, but this but is the concept the that I would try to. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's actually when I've been just looking at images for my next book. I would like this this thing to come up strongly in my next book. So I uh, that's why it's also. Uh, something that I mind very strongly because I'm looking through the images and looking, picking up images where I, you can establish that connection very directly. So that's that's what I probably would put in the. <laughs> I, well, I think it's important because you you start looking at some of these arguments being made for 
population numbers and the growth of everything. And it's very, very easy to get too focused on the macro and not really get into the details on the individual level, which is like the health and vitality and the happiness of the animals in general. And I think that's that's something that a lot of those, uh, a lot of conservation efforts need to be taking into account. You mentioned the second book. Can you, I mean, I'm going to link to obviously your website and your Instagram account, which everybody should check out, but can you talk a little bit about light and dust? Yep. Yeah, Light and Dust is uh, my first book. It came out in uh, 2015. Uh, it's a kind of, a, again, after, uh, after a long uh, decisional process on how to, uh, to tackle my first book, because I had so many stories, as we've seen, that I'd followed through the years, the characters, right. the elephants, the leopards. And so uh, almost every one of them could have been a book on its own. But then I thought, okay, this might, might be my first and last book. I might not make another one. So, and as a first book, I would like—I would really like to uh, for people to have a glimpse into what I have done in in these years and uh, in all the the photographic styles that I've uh, that I've uh, w- worked with uh, through these years. So, I I I I gathered all these stories in uh, in in the book Light and Dust and uh, my photographic style. I have, I particularly love. Uh, images of uh, animals silhouetted in the dust, in dust storms, or in as they walk through the plains, or through the through the. So many times, the animals uh, kick up dust, uh, and I feel that's a very, very African uh, thing. When you see a herd of elephants or a herd of zebras in a cloud of dust with the sun setting behind, that to me is a. Uh, um, the main uh, one of the strongest uh, icons of Africa, and that's how I picked uh, I picked this title for the book. So it's uh, this book basically collects uh, the most uh, most of the main stories that I followed through the years. Obviously, it's one book, so it's a it's a tight selection of images from all the ones I've uh, I've taken. But I feel the ones that are probably more uh, at the moment, uh, they, they were the ones I was uh, considering my 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 some of my best. I, I, there were many that were left out, but uh, so that's 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 light and dust. It's both in colors and black and white. So some images are black and white, some are color, and I tried to blend the two. It's not always easy to uh, to get color in black and white to go along together, but that's what I tried to do in this. Uh, in this in this book and i hope and i hope it has come out uh come out right yeah i mean i through my interviews with wildlife photographers you kind of see everybody has a specific style and there's people who take a more biological approach or a scientific approach to photographing wildlife and there's people who focus on portraits and landscapes and um it's just a, a wide variety. And I think when I look at your photographs and, uh, it's always just kind of a, holy shit, that's beautiful type of reaction. Yeah. That's what I tried to, Um, yeah. To the point where like, sometimes you're like, okay, like I know if I had the right equipment, I could get that shot. Or if I was there at the right time in the right moment, I could get that shot. Sometimes I look at yours and I'm just like absolutely mind blown at how anybody could ever capture that image. So if people want to see that, definitely check out Light and Dust. I mean, your work is phenomenal. I'm a huge fan. And Thank I'm you. A, Thank unfortunately, you. like you, you schedule two hours and you're like, okay, like 
we'll get through a lot, but I think we'll have to do another two hours in a few months because I, <laughs> uh, I, I have so much more I want to ask. But uh, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time. It's It's been thank awesome you. chatting. Been- and I really look forward to keeping keeping tabs. What What are you expecting over the next few years? What should we look out for? I'm hoping to have another book out soon. I don't know exactly when yet, but uh, I'm hoping to have another one out soon. And, uh, and Do you know what it's about yet? That, that's that's what I mentioned slightly before. I just, obviously, animals and the places are the same ones that have been uh, so East Africa mostly. Okay. But I want to try to make a book where I have uh, where I can emphasize that that connection of feelings between animals and and people so try to to that's oh, that's gotcha. what that's that's okay, basically cool. the idea awesome that's basically that. the idea and i suspect it's going to be a whole black and white book uh this time around i want to try to focus on black and white work on uh, on the next one so uh we'll see we'll, uh, hopefully it will be out maybe i would not at least not for one year yet what is the so, what is the emphasis on black and white? Is there is it a stylistic thing, or is there something else that you think that it's kind of uh, to me black and white? It kind of uh, gives this uh, timeless timeless feeling and mm-hmm. takes away uh, basically uh, makes kind of gives this uh, eter- eternal eternal feeling, and it goes right through the to straight to the emotion, straight to the uh to the inner uh soul of the picture and hopefully of who looks at at it as well so that's why i think for this Very kind cool. of uh uh for this kind of uh theme that i want to develop i think the black and white is the best because it kind of peels away everything takes away everything else and just leaves the uh the 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 the, the moment and the feeling and it makes it eternal in a way. So that's what I want to try to, uh, to do with, uh, with, that's why I like black and white so much. Nowadays, I'm really, really always photo when I look, when I photograph, it's almost always looking at black and white. Whereas light and dust, the first book had a very strong, uh, presence of color mm. of, uh, especially warm colors of sunset. And, uh, now I want to, uh, go more towards the, uh, the, the towards the black and white. So that's, that's awesome. uh, well, we'll keep you. an eye on it and we're, we're really lovely. excited to lovely. see it. I, Hopefully uh, it will come. I think I've had like three conclusions in the last 20 minutes and then something you say sparks another question. So I'm going to stop now <laughs> before I keep going, but thank you again so much for taking the time. Again, I'm a thank huge you fan. So looking forward to seeing everything for everybody listening. Please check out light and dust and I'll link everything else, Instagram website and the show notes, but thanks so much for listening. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc. Please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.